following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We, we talked uh, about uh, the kingdom actually comes with Jesus, right? And oftentimes we think of these great end apocalyptic times when the uh, when Christ returns at a second coming, that that's when the kingdom comes. But Jesus teaches very clearly that the kingdom is primarily his lordship over our life and that he established and inaugurated his kingdom through the cross. And I love some of the songs we sang this morning really really bring that out, that he, he went to the cross and he reigns. They're not two separate things. It is through his death and through his life-giving work on the cross that he regains the right and ability to be Lord over our life because our hearts are changed and transformed from being rebellious to being willing to surrender our life to him. Uh, so we live now in this in-between time where we have, uh, through faith and through the work of Christ, entered into his kingdom uh, but we get that the kingdom is not all here yet. And we look for and long for the day when the final and completed uh, reign of Christ comes where he rules over all things. And Jesus warns his disciples that it will be a wait and they need to be prepared. And in this passage, he gives them some idea of both what his coming will be like and how we're to think about it and how we're to live in light of his coming. So this morning we want to understand that and check our lives to make sure we're living in light of that day. Uh, Jesus describes and calls that day the day uh, of the coming of the Son of Man. And he unfolds what that day is going to be like. And uh, as, as we wait for the end, he basically describes that day in not great detail, but he gives us a good picture of what to expect. So let's look at what will happen when the end comes as we wait for it. And uh, Jesus says to his disciples, again, he's, he's addressing here followers, and he says the days are coming when you will long, you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Uh, there's, there should be, for all of us who are in the kingdom, a longing and a desire uh, for the end. Uh, and there should be this sense of certainty that the end will come. Uh, as you go through your daily life, do you kind of get this sense that life as it is now will go on forever? I mean, sometimes it's easy to feel that way, right? It's like this is kind of normal, and, and things are just going to keep going. It's been this way for thousands of years where people get up in the morning and the sun rises and they eat breakfast and they go out and do their work. And uh, as it says in the days of Noah, they get married and have children, have families, and that's just going to always be the way it is. Uh, but Scripture is very clear that history had a very specific beginning point, and likewise it will have a very specific end point. And every tick of the clock is moving us step by step closer to a final ending. Uh, of course, it's an ending which is also a beginning, because it will be the beginning of God's absolute perfect reign over, uh, over all his creatures. Uh, but it will be the end of life as we know it. It will be the end of the world as we understand it, as we gra grasp it. Um, uh, history is moving towards this great culmination. Uh, and Jesus says that that day will come in his return. 
Son of Man will come back, and at that day, instantly things will change. Well, what exactly will that day be like? Well, he gives uh, three general descriptions. Again, Jesus doesn't work out the whole um, end times theology here, and I don't have a chart. Sorry. I don't have a chart with all the little nifty clouds and arrows and raising it up and, you know, I uh, don't have that. And Jesus doesn't give it here. And honestly, Scripture's um, full of all kinds of information that nobody agrees on, right? So if I have tried, I have to have 10 charts to cover them all, or 50, 100 charts, I don't know. Jesus doesn't go into great detail here, but he makes three things pretty clear about what it will be like when he returns. First of all, it will be unmistakable and unavoidable. Okay, his return will be unmistakable, unavoidable. He says, he says uh, some will say to you, look, look there or look here, uh, thinking that you know, this is Jesus, this is return, some random place. He says, no, don't follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Uh, the picture is that uh, if you're out at a dark night, um, when, when, when the lightning strikes, right, it lights up the whole sky. And everybody from one horizon to another in a, in a valley or in a spot. I mean, it's, it's vast, the people who see it and who know it. So that's what it's going to be. The Son of Man's return will be visible to all. Right? It will be unmistakable. No one will question or doubt or wonder if Jesus has really come back. It will be visible and evident on a grand and epic scale. So we don't need to wonder, well, you know, maybe Jesus is here somewhere hiding out in, you know, some, some back room somewhere just waiting. No, when he comes, everybody will know. Everybody will know. It will be a global event that no one will miss. Uh, verse 30 says this, So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The word there for revealed is the Greek word from which we get the word apocalypse. And it doesn't mean just a, a, a minor showing. It means a grand revelation. Uh, Jesus' first coming was, uh, was a revelation. It was uh, God revealing himself to us. But we, we know from Scripture that most people didn't get who Jesus was. Uh, his his coming was localized within, uh, within Palestine. Uh, and, and even those who saw him mostly didn't get who he was. But that will not be the case with the second coming. People will know and understand as, as he is revealed as the returning Jesus, the returning Messiah. And people will not be confused about who he is. Uh, the most serious atheist, the most serious person who's denied and rejected Christ on that day will have revelation, okay? That's why they call it the book of Revelation. They will have understanding, and they will know who Jesus is. And there will be no, uh, well, I don't really believe in Jesus, right? They're going to believe in Jesus. At that moment, they will know who he is. Uh, and so not only will it be unmistakable, it will also be unavoidable. Uh, you know, there, there is news that goes out, and right now there's all kinds of news that goes out that everybody hears and knows about, right? Um, Boko Haram kidnapping and killing people. It's around the world we know that. We hear that news. Christians being slaughtered in Iran. Uh, it's on, everywhere on Facebook, right? Uh, if you've got Facebook, you know everything. It's the ultimate source of all knowledge. It's Facebook, right? Um, devastating earthquake in Nepal. And, and it's close to us, and maybe many of you have friends and people there, right? Great news. But what do, what do we tend to do with that kind of news? 
Well, I don't know about you, but for me, I, I kind of notice, notice that I feel, sometimes I actually will pray, which is a good thing, uh, for those people. I'll feel a little of the pain and horror of it. But I go on my, my life, right? I don't spend my whole day worrying about, you know, the people suffering in Iran or Iraq or wherever, you know. Um, we can ignore it. We can put it aside because it doesn't directly affect us, right? That will not be the case when Jesus comes back. No one will ignore this news event. Nobody will see it on CNN and say, well, that's nice, Jesus came back, and I'm going to go on my ho-hum life. No, right? It will be something you cannot ignore because it will affect and impact every human being on the planet. Um, no one will miss it, right? So that's the first thing. It's unavoidable, unmistakable. Second thing he says about it is that it will come and happen quite suddenly. It will happen quite suddenly. And he describes it this way. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then what happened? Well, the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, building... But on that day, when Lot went out from Sodom, in a moment, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Right? So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This makes it very clear that when he comes, it will be in a flash. It will be something that will happen um, suddenly. And people will be quite caught off guard by its coming. Uh, one of the points of this, this parable of, or this example from Lot and, Abra uh, Lot and Noah is that uh, the people were going about their daily life quite unaware of the impending doom, right? They're, they're doing everyday life things, eating, drinking, figuring out what's going to be for supper, uh, getting married, celebrating these events of life, making plans for the future, uh, pursuing the goals of their own ambitions and dreams, right? Um, planning for their retirement, planning, you know, their future businesses, planting, building, right? Um, and they live quite oblivious to what is looming ahead of them. I have a good friend and ministry partner who, is in, who lives in Kathmandu and was there when the uh, earthquake hit, and he's been sending blurbs about kind of his experience and one of the things he wrote was this. He says, The parables of last week's earthquake to, to the day of the Lord are significant. He says, It came out of nowhere. The videos of the event show people going about their business, oblivious that in the next moment their life is going to change. The message for us is get ready, be ready. And he shared with me one of these videos from one of their churches um, and they were having a worship service, and somebody was in there videoing the worship service with his camera, with his phone, you know. And all of a sudden, the building starts to shake, and you can see just the whole world moving. And suddenly, there's kind of screaming and, and commotion, and people are rushing out of the building. And uh, he takes his phone, doesn't turn it off, and you just see, you know, kind of the world spinning as he's running outside. And there's dust and more screaming. And literally within seconds, he turns and pans the camera, the, his phone, to the building they had just been in, this very crude, kind of primitive uh, church. It's just flattened, just flattened. It's like that. It's gone. 
right? Just that quickly in a in a minute, one minute video, right? Um, well, that's how it will be, right? That's how it will be. The coming of the sun will be in an instant um, when Jesus returns. Uh, Jesus illustrates it even further this way. He says, on that day, the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house should not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field should not turn back. Uh, this, this illustration kind of goes by us because um, it's really an image from an impending invasion by a foreign army. And uh, I don't know if some of you are old enough to remember like fallout shelters, right? The little, the little triangular thing, you know. And, and uh, I remember as a kid, you know, we'd have these drills when the, when the Russians send the bomb and, and you know, nuke us. Uh, we got to run for cover, right? And we got these little concrete shelters we're going to live in for the next 40 years uh, till the radiation clears out, right? Well, uh, in, in Jesus' day, they didn't have fallout shelters, and the threat was not nuclear arms, but there was a threat of invading armies, you know, popping up over the hill because uh, they didn't have Facebook, so who knew that they were coming, right? Couldn't warn them. And uh, this army could sweep down on your city, and you were told, you were taught as a child, if that happens, don't pack your bags. Don't go, you know, scrounging for food. You've got to run. You must run because your only hope is to flee immediately because the danger will come that quickly, that quickly, right? And that's the image that, that they would have understood in Jesus' day. When Jesus gives this illustration, he's saying, an invasion is coming and it's coming so quickly, you don't have time to do anything about it. Your only hope is to flee so you run, right? Now, be, be honest. How many of you, when you're sitting on the airplane, you know, and you're waiting to take off, and there's the uh, little safety spiel that you've heard 10,000 times, right? Okay, we all have this spiel memorized, right? We can say this by heart in our sleep because we've heard it so many times. And at some point, they say this. In case of an emergency evacuation, please leave your belongings and head to the nearest emergency exit. Now, honestly, how many of you start thinking... I think I'd have time to get my bag. <laughs> I know where it is. I think I'm getting my bag. <laughs> okay, I'm not following that one, right? Uh, anybody? Anybody? See, I, I have that thought. And then, you know, you see the, the whole the pictures of burned out airplane shells. And you start thinking, okay, maybe, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll skip the bag. <laughs> maybe I'll just go for the door, right? Um, well, the point is that when Jesus comes, there's only time to flee, right? There is no time to plan or prepare when he comes. It will be that sudden. It will be that sudden. Um, and, it, and, and as my friend said, now is the time to prepare, right? Not then. Now is the time to do something about it, not then. Um, th there is no time to change your mind. Remember the song, Two Men Walking Up a Hill, One Disappears, One Left Standing Still. Um, the, the time has come. Okay, how's the sun go? I lost it. The time. I wish we'd all been ready. There it is. The time has come. I'm missing a line in there. I wish we'd all been ready, right? Um, there is no time to change your mind. There is no time to prepare. Right? It comes instantly. Right? So it comes unmistakably. It comes instantly. Thirdly, it comes with a definite finality. Right? When Jesus comes, it really marks the end of something. 
Right? There is a moment of great decision and finality in his coming. Um, and the, 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 the illustration he gives of the guy on the housetop not, not going into his house and just running, or the person in the field who just flees, kind of gives the indication that maybe you can escape this. Right? Can you escape when the sun comes, when this day of judgment comes? And it is a day of judgment, as in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Those who were not prepared were destroyed. Right? So it will be when the Son of Man comes. It is a day of final judgment and destruction. Can you escape it? Well, uh, the, the, the point is, it will be final, right? It says it this way in verse 34. I tell you, in, in, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. When Jesus comes, there will be an instant and immediate sorting out of people. I don't know how this looks. And, of course, if you get the charts out, there's all kinds of arrows and ups and downs and U-turns and things, right? Uh, I'm not going to go there. I'll let you create your own charts and U-turns and arrows. But um, we know this. There will be a dividing between those who are in the kingdom and who have given their allegiance to the king and who follow Christ and those who do not. Now, uh, just to confuse things further, um, are the ones left the safe ones or the ones who are taken? Well, Jesus doesn't make that clear. And, uh, of course, it kind of depends on your theology. And there's some debate over that one. Uh, if you're taken to judgment or if you're left to judgment, bottom line is it doesn't really matter, okay? Either way, somebody loses and somebody wins. Somebody meets instant destruction and the other meets God's eternal salvation. That's the point. Right? Jesus doesn't break down the details here. He just says there will be a sorting out. And at that time, um, it's too late to make changes. Right? If you're not prepared, it's too late to deal with it then because it will come so suddenly, it will be done. It will just be done. Right? Um, to, to highlight the finality of it, Jesus ends with these words. In verse 37, the disciples ask him, Where, Lord? Meaning, where, where will this judgment, where will this coming of day of the Lord happen? Uh, Jesus doesn't really exactly answer the question. He says this, uh, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will, will gather. Um, he says, look, there, there will be massive death and destruction. And there will be corpses and dead bodies, and the vultures will be circling over them, right? And it will be the end. Right? It will be the end. It will be a final uh, day of God's judgment on the earth. And it really is a, a, a horrible scene of this earth that is just ravaged by death, where God comes and he destroys all who are not following him. Uh, it's hard to read passages like this and understand how people could hope for some kind of universal salvation for all. Right? I just do not see it here. Right? Uh, scripture is just painfully clear that now is the time to prepare yourself for eternity. That when the end comes, it is that. It is the end. 
And there are no second, third chances. The time for second chances is now. And God's given them graciously. Right? Uh, earlier it says that before all these things can happen, Jesus must do what? Well, he must suffer many things. Right? Jesus came to the cross and he suffered many things so that we could take his way of escape. Right? But there will come a day and a time when choosing will be past. And there will no longer be the option to change. Right? Uh, like the song says, um, you know, I wish we'd all been ready. Right Now is the time. There will come a day when it will be final and there will not be other chances. Um, so that kind of gives in a nutshell what, what Jesus portrays will happen in his second coming. And in that sense, for, for the world, it's not particularly a happy day. It's kind of a heavy, serious day. Of course, there are the Noahs and there are the Lots. There are those who were prepared, who uh, came to Christ, who will receive salvation on that day. And certainly we want to be uh, in that group. And by faith, we are, we are in the kingdom, right? But how do we think about these events? And... Uh, you know, as we think about the, the kind of the horror of it all, uh, how are we supposed to think about this, right? As people who um, who, are, who pray for the salvation of the lost, right? As people who are to love our enemies, right? Who are to pursue God's salvation for the world, right? How do we think about these kind of tragic, horrible events at the end time when Jesus rains down judgment and wrath on all? Um, how do we deal with it? How do we think about these things? And what do we do as this? And he's, he's writing this to his disciples, right? So these are instructions, not so much for the lost, but for his disciples. What do we do with this picture of what's coming uh, at the end of the, of the age? Well, let me give us a couple suggestions of what I think Jesus wants us to do with this information. Uh, first of all, we're not just waiting for that day, but we really are longing for that day. He says, there will come a day when you, as my followers, he says, will, will desire to see the days of the Son of Man. Right? That doesn't mean that we desire to see all this great destruction. Well, not, not, not so much that. But we ought to be a people who long for and desire the end. Right? The coming completion of the kingdom. Uh, we are to long for that day. And if we truly are living under the lordship of Christ, right? If we're uh, in his kingdom, we are following him and we have come and we have declared him as Lord and King over our life. And his cross is having, the work of the cross is having its transforming work in our heart. Um, and I think we are changed into different kind of people who see the world differently. And this is one of the things that I think it means to long for that day to long for the coming when, when Jesus comes and he, he, he judges the earth. Um, first of all, uh, Jesus makes it clear that there will be hardship for us. One of the reasons we long for that day is that life here is hard. And even though we're in the kingdom and we enjoy its benefits, uh, we don't enjoy enough of its benefits, right? I'm still waiting for that day when life gets a whole lot easier, right? when uh, I don't have to deal with all the things in my life that I hate, right? right? Um, 
I look forward to that day. And so that's certainly part of it. But beyond that, there's a greater longing that we should have. And the longing, I believe, is this, that as we live in this world, not only does its sinfulness and brokenness impact my life personally, but even more so, as I look around the world, I see everywhere all kinds of suffering and injustice and pain, right? And uh, I don't know about you, but as, as we come to know Christ more and more, uh, that kind of injustice ought to bother us more and more, right? Just this last week, I was in Isan visiting one of our projects there. Uh, Marcus and Boom are starting a um, kind of a crisis pregnancy center where they give uh, crisis pregnancy counseling, but also where they have a, a home for preg- pregnant teen moms. And they're just starting their ministry. They're just getting it off the ground, and they got their first customer. Uh, and this customer was a college, Thai college girl who got pregnant um, and ended up uh, having her baby. And uh, in the hospital, her her family was, was very angry with her that she didn't abort the baby um, in the first place. And then they're even more angry that she had the baby, and they were demanding her to get rid of this baby and to, to uh, just walk away, right? And... Um, so this poor girl was so distraught by all this, she had worked out this great plan in the hospital to actually hang herself in the hospital. That's how torn apart she was by this decision. Uh, a Thai social worker knew about uh, Marcus and Boom's ministry, and so she contacted them, and they went to the hospital, and they came alongside her and were able to help her. They got her out of the hospital, got the baby. Uh, but as her story unfolded, they realized that there's no way that this mom can, can keep this baby. She just feeling so much pressure from the family to get rid of it. And, and why, why is the pressure? Are they afraid that it just makes the family look bad? Some of it. But here's the underlying thing of why they're so anxious for this college girl to get rid of her baby. It's because they cannot wait for her to graduate and go out and get a good job and make money so she can support them. Right? Uh, and it's just so typical, sadly, in, in, in Thai culture. Right, that the child exists to bail mom and dad out. And her grandmother uh, uh, is pressuring her to pay out this huge debt that, that the girl's mom owes, the grandmother's daughter, girl's mom, right? There's this pressure. You've got to get a job and you've got to make money to pay off your mom's debt. Right? And all they care about is this young girl's uh, income-generating potential, right? And they, they don't care about her baby or her, right? And, and here's the injustice of it all. Here are perfectly capable grown-ups who can get jobs and who can make money and who can take care of themselves, pressuring this young college girl who's still, you know, still in college to take care of them and, and to do so by neglecting her baby that's helpless for which nobody can take care of, right? Um, I mean, she's... She's the responsibility of this girl, right? Well, to me, that's just injustice. When I hear this, it just makes me angry, right? It just makes me really, really angry. And every day throughout the world, these kind of things happen all around us, right? Everywhere. There's this kind of injustice where people in their brokenness and sinfulness run over other people and oppress and abuse them and take advantage of them to their own selfish ends, right? And, of course, we're not exempt of that. You know, how many times have we used people 
to our own selfish ends. So we don't say these things like we're better than them. The reality is that's the world we live in. Well, as we encounter those kind of things, there should be a longing for what? For God to come and fix it. For Jesus to come back someday and to bring justice. To protect the orphan and the widow and the oppressed and those who are being crushed under the load of sin. And of course, we labor today, we labor here and now to bring the gospel to lives of people like this this teenage girl and her family so that they will not make those kind of decisions because the only hope is the transforming work of the cross in their life. But the reality is we know that not everybody is going to receive the gift of God's grace. Some people are going to be determined to walk in their rebellion and their wickedness. What will be the end of that? Well, the only end will be when God comes, when Jesus returns, and he finally rules over everything with perfect justice, which means people will get what they deserve. The wicked, the proud, the haughty, those who rejected God's gift of grace will get what they deserve. And God will restore peace and order and shalom to this world. There's a sense in which we should, we should long for that. As residents and citizens of God's kingdom, uh, we, we, we do long for those who defy God's grace and defy God, who are living out their selfish whims at the expense of the innocent, to face justice. Right? And God will remake the world, right? and there will no longer be that kind of injustice. So that's the first thing. Is as we deal with sin in the world, we should be longing for the day when God fixes it. Second thing, uh, we need to be aware and prepared. We need to be aware and prepared. The, in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, uh, their, great, their great failure was that they lived life oblivious to God and to what God required of them and to what God's purpose and plan was in the world. Uh, They were clueless. Uh, They were unaware that judgment was coming. They were unconcerned about the greater realities of life. They were so consumed with their daily needs, with their own ambitions and their own dreams, they were oblivious to what God demanded. And so in the end, they were completely unprepared. Uh, We don't want to be in that place, right? We do not want to be unprepared to meet God. And I think the antidote for that is that we need to be constantly living, not only with our eyes on our immediate need for today, and, and our, those needs are legitimate. God is, Jesus is not condemning their desire to eat and drink. Praise God for food. Amen? Anybody? Anybody? Love food, right? I'm thinking about what's for lunch, right? The minutes are ticking down. Yay! We're going to get to eat, right? But are, are we seeing beyond that, right? It's okay to plan for the future. But the, the tragedy is that we're trying to make a secure future, but not a secure eternity. Right? How many people are living for a, a prosperous future, but not a prosperous eternity? So we've got to be evaluating our life constantly, not on this life alone, 
but on its meaning in terms of all eternity. Jesus will come back and we will be saved by his grace. Some will be judged. Those of us who are in Christ will be called out. We will be saved. But we will still stand before him and we also will be judged. Praise God, we will not be destroyed. But the works of our life will be examined before God. Right? We need to constantly live in the, re- in, in the reality that that's what we face. Right? Someday we go to the principal's office and we're going to give an answer for everything we did. Right? I was terrified of the principal's office. I'm not quite sure why, because I think I mostly did good things, right? Uh, Are you ready to stand before Jesus and give an account for your ministry and your life and your attitude and your actions? We need to be aware and prepared. Um, Thirdly, we need to look forward and not back. I love this verse. It says, remember Lot's wife. Three simple words. Remember Lot's wife. Okay. Remember Lot's wife? Uh, what happened to Lot's wife? She became a cow lick. Okay, for those of you who aren't farmers, a salt block. Right? Some of you are farmers. That's good. Bless you, like a cow lick. Uh, she became a block of salt, right? Why? Because she looked back at the destruction happening on Sodom. Right? Um, why did she look back? Right? And, and, and the angels had warned her, so this didn't come without a warning. The angels had said, flee and do not look back. Flee. Why did she look back? Was it a matter that she was just curious? I don't think so. And the context really tells us why she looked back and why we're to remember her. Jesus interprets it for us. He says, on that day, let no one who is on the house up with his goods in the house not come, uh, come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Okay. What does turning back represent here? Verse 33, whoever seeks his life, uh, seeks to preserve his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. What does it mean to turn back? Well, it means to, it means to love this life. Lot's wife turned back because she loved her life in Sodom. And she was sad that she was having to leave it behind. And she looked back with longing desire on her home and her things and her friends and her life, right? That she was leaving all behind. You see, she loved those things more than she loved God. Um, Do we love, and here's the thing, do we love the things here and now? Do we love the things of this life more than... We love God. That's not to say that we can't enjoy life. We should enjoy life. But those things become so important to us that um, we're, we're longing for those things. Uh, another good example of this is the, the nation of Israel in the Exodus, right? God took them out of slavery, bondage and slavery. Took them out of the Exodus and was taking them to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, okay? Uh, which means more than just they had lots of cheese and honey. It means that it was a good life, right? A good life, right? But as they're in the desert between Egypt and, and the promised land, what do the people do? Do they look forward to the promised land or do they look back to Egypt? They look back to Egypt, right? They start missing their old life. I know the whole slavery thing was a little bit of a problem, but I love the onions. <laughs> what I would give for an onion, right? Uh, 
They loved their old life. Do we love our old life? Right? Honestly, are there things that we turn and look back to about our own life? Uh, sinful habits, sinful practices, thing, things about what we could do before we became a Christian and had to follow all these rules, right? That we long for and we turn back with longing eyes on those things. Right? Beware, right? Beware. Um, we must keep our eyes forward and we must turn away from those things. What do you look back on today, right? What are the things that turns your head back with longing affection about your old life, about the things that are temporary and of this world? I saw this great comic on Facebook of these people in heaven, and they're all walking around like this, staring at their hands. Maybe you saw this. And it said, the caption says, all the new arrivals just, just walk around staring at their hands, you know, like where there used to be a cell phone, right? Because right, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. Their cell phone's gone, and they're like, eh, right? So how we're going to be, get to heaven, and we're so longing for the stuff of this world, we, we miss the glory of heaven, right? Don't look back. Finally, uh, we need to be losing our life, not loving it. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses it uh, will keep it. Second time in the Gospel of Luke that, that Jesus says this. Right? Um, if we love the things of this world, we, we, we risk the danger of meeting God's eternal judgment. But the good news is, if we're willing to throw away our life in pursuit of God, right, we will find salvation. What that means is that we should love God so much. We should pursue his will and his plan and his agenda so much that we would gladly lay down anything in this life and in this world for him, right? even our own life. We would die because we know that he is worth it. Right? This is not some kind of crazy like martyrdom thing like we're obsessed with killing ourselves. No, it means that we sacrifice because we know that what we gain in Christ is worth it. Right? Our life means nothing apart from him. So we gladly lay down our life and our treasures and our possessions and our goals and our ambitions, knowing that through it we gain Christ. Uh, one of the most beautiful pictures and illustrations of this is uh, St. Francis of Assisi. If you know much about his story, his father was a wealthy, wealthy cloth merchant, and he and his dad kind of got in a big, huge fight. Uh, St. Francis kind of stole some money from his dad to fix up a church. <laughs> Seems like a good cause, right? Dad was not happy, and he was supposedly a Christian, but did not approve of uh, um, Francis's priorities. And he actually took his son to court, put him in jail, and took his son to court to make him pay back all the money, right, and kind of make a point with his son. And at the end of the hearings, in the midst of it, St. Francis just... He just walks away from it all. He takes the very shirt off of his back, right? Assuming he had something, you know, on underneath, an undershirt or something. But he takes the robes off his back and he throws it at his father's feet. And he walks out of the church into a snowy courtyard. And from that day forward, he put all material wealth behind him. And he chose to live the rest of life never owning anything, right? A lot of people misunderstand what they did and they think he was making some kind of statement about the glories of poverty or you know, some kind of political statement about the wealth of the materialism of his day. But that's not at all what it was for Francis. 
Francis knew this. He knew that wealth would stand between him and his relationship with God. And he decided that uh, nothing was worth it if it came between him and knowing Jesus. So he, he threw it all away because he wanted Jesus more. Right? Um, are we willing to throw it all away because we want Jesus more? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.